Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Having looked at each of the Ten Commandments one by one, we are now up to the tenth and final commandment. Remember that the Ten Commandments are in the order that they are in for a reason. Not only that, but the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. And the last six commandments deal with our relationships to one another. This tenth commandment is last, as we'll see, because of both its relationship to and its unique difference from the other nine. With that in mind, look with me in Exodus chapter 20 as I read verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of God. In 2018, the Harvard Business School conducted a study of 4,000 millionaires in the U.S. The question that was posed to them was, how much money would it take for you to be happy? 26% of the respondents thought they needed 10 times more than they had. And that was the largest option that was offered to them. 24% chose five times more. 23% said two times more. And only 13% of the millionaires that were polled said they currently had enough. Probably the most surprising discovery was that the answer was consistent no matter how much money a person had. In other words, someone with $100 million was just as likely as the person with $10 million to select they needed 10 times more to be truly happy. The lead researcher on this study, he suggested that the problem for so many millionaires is comparison. The question of happiness for them is not so much, do I have enough? But do I have more than those around me? He concluded this, that lead researcher. If a family amasses $50 million but moves into a neighborhood where everyone has more money, they will still not be happy. All the way up the spectrum of wealth, basically everyone says they need two or three times as much to be happy. As we think about the Tenth Commandment this morning, we're first of all going to consider the unique seriousness of coveting. The unique seriousness of coveting. As you read through the Ten Commandments, you'll notice two things. First, you go from being instructed to gaze on God in worship to being told not to gaze with a longing on your neighbor's donkey. Quite a contrast, if you think about it. Secondly, you'll notice that every commandment prohibits an external act until you get to the Tenth Commandment, and it is the only one that prohibits an internal action. You see, coveting deals with motives and intentions. Coveting is the sin that's not visible to the human eye, the only one that is truly seen by God alone. It's probably also the commandment we are most prone to break and not even realize that we are doing so. I'm so tired of driving this old car around. All I do is take it to the mechanics. Why does that guy get a new car every two years? It's not like he does anything to deserve it. I mean, I work harder than he does. Look at her. 
redecorating her kitchen again. I mean, come on. We haven't done anything to our kitchen in 15 years. They sure know how to waste money. But the man who says, my wife, she doesn't look like she once did, nor do we get along like we used to. A younger woman who actually cares about me, understands me, like Dave has, that, that guy over there like he has, that's what I need. My family is crazy. Why can't I have a normal family like theirs? Or in relation to the pastor, why is his church growing? I wish I had half the number of people coming to my church on a Sunday morning. Since it's not readily apparent when someone is coveting, then coveting becomes, as one person wrote, the sin that no one commits. Yet, coveting is the sin that is very often the root of many others. Recall Achan in the book of Joshua. We mentioned him when we looked at the Eighth Commandment. He was among the Israelites who went in to conquer the city of Jericho after those walls fell. And when the items that were under the ban, the items the Israelites were not supposed to take, but he stole, were discovered in his tent. This is what Achan said in Joshua 7.21. He said, I coveted them and took them. Before Achan stole, he coveted. The coveting led to the stealing. Or consider King David. He first noticed Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. He coveted his neighbor's wife. That's a breach of the Tenth Commandment. And then he sent for her and slept with her. That's a breach of the Eighth and Seventh Commandments, stealing and adultery, respectively. Finally, he sent a message to his military commander to place Bathsheba's husband in a position on the battlefield where he was sure to get killed. That's a breach of the Sixth Commandment, murder. It could be argued that David broke even more commandments as a follower of God and God's chosen king. He misrepresented the Lord's name with his actions. A breach of the third commandment. He made an idol out of his own desires, a breach of the second commandment. He failed to put God first, which is breaking the first commandment. He dealt dishonestly with Uriah and others. Uriah, that is Bathsheba's husband, breaking the ninth commandment. And to top it off, he dishonored his father and his mother and all of it. Fifth commandment. So that's nine out of ten commandments. Broken. And it all began with David coveting what did not belong to him. James, he breaks this down for us in the New Testament, in the New Testament book of James, chapter 4, verse 2. He writes, you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Envy is a sister to coveting. Envy is more about denying a person what you do not want them to have, while coveting is wanting what someone else does have. But the principle that James expresses is the same for envying or for coveting. You want, you can't get what you want. This leads to discontentment. Discontentment makes you irritable. Irritability makes you argumentative. And if the argument you pursue with the one you feel like is keeping you from getting what you want escalates, you fight. You might even get violent. Or as James succinctly puts it, you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What therefore is coveting exactly? Well, we know that it has something to do with our desires. But desire alone is not sinful. God created us with desires. A man typically desires a wife. A woman typically uh, desires a husband. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. So it's not a sin to desire certain things. The Lord would not encourage us to seek and find them. 
It's not wrong to desire a good job or a steady income or a nice house. Numerous proverbs encourage hard work in order to be financially secure, if not successful. Proverbs 10.4 says, Poor is he who worked with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 12.11, He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Proverbs 24.27, Prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards, then build your house. Food, security, a house, nice things even, none of these are prohibited desires. So what is it that makes the desire represented by coveting a sin? Well, coveting is desiring someone else's stuff, or someone else's spouse, or someone else's life. It's saying to yourself, if I had what he has, I would be happy. If I had what she has, I would be happy. Coveting is an illegitimate desire. It's wanting to possess something that you have no right to possess. Coveting is discontentment over what you have, coupled with a longing for what someone else has. As one person said, our problem is not that we desire things, but that we desire wrong things. So how serious is coveting in the eyes of God? We'll listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. For this know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There are two things in this New Testament verse, Ephesians 5, 5, two things that it tells us about how serious the Lord takes this hidden sin. First, Coveting is placed in the same listing with sexual immorality and impurity. Impurity here is, is uncleanness and fault or a deed. Our tendency would be to put coveting in a different category than either of those. The second thing to notice from Ephesians 5.5 5 is that the covetous man or woman is compared to an idolater. Intensely desiring what is not yours is related to idolatry. And it's not difficult to understand why this is the case. Not difficult to understand the connection. It goes back to the happiness factor. Fill in the blank. If I just had blank, then I would be happy and satisfied. What goes in that blank for you? Whatever goes in your blank that is not God is your idol. It's that person or thing that you look toward as your God. That person or thing that you think will bring you fulfillment. And so it's not hard to understand Paul's comparison between coveting and idolatry. What you intensely desire that belongs to someone else, you intensely desire because of what you think it's going to do for you. But if you ever get that thing, of course, you will realize how it does not actually bring you happiness or satisfaction. Because idols make promises that they never make good on. John D. Rockefeller was once famously asked, how much money would be enough? His answer, just a little bit more. That person or that thing that's coveted, like an idol, it never brings you what you hope it will. Coveting is a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. It's thinking only about your happiness. If you're thinking about what you want, even at the expense of someone else, there's no room in your heart to love your neighbor. God is not only concerned for what coveting does to your soul, 
He's also concerned with what coveting does to the soul of your neighbor. Francis Schaeffer, he was a pastor, he was a philosopher, uh, a missionary to really the, the lost generation of the 60s, those that were searching so desperately for truth, and that they were heading east, eastern religions, uh, drugs, sexual freedom, so-called, all those things. Francis Schaeffer ministered to that cultural context. He wrote this, when does proper desire become coveting? I think we can put the answer down simply. Desire becomes sin when it fails to include the love of God or men. Further, I think there are two practical tests as to when we are coveting against God or men. First, I am to love God enough to be contented. Second, I am to love men enough not to envy. Out of all the ancient moral codes that have been discovered, that have been dug up, that have been unearthed, the Ten Commandments is the only ancient code that prohibits coveting. Others speak against murder and theft and adultery, but none that we know of, none that we've discovered, address coveting except for the commandments written by the finger of God. Other ancient cultures, they were not given the divine insight into how much the internal sin of coveting plays out in these external manifestations of sin. Jesus, of course, he possessed such insight. When the young rich man came to him in Mark chapter 10, he asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus, he begins to rattle off the last six commandments, all those that had to do with loving one's neighbor. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And then Jesus stops. The young man, by his own admission, He'd done a good job keeping all of those, at least externally. The one commandment that Jesus did not mention, whose omission would have been glaringly obvious to any serious Jew, was do not covet. This inwardly searching commandment was not so easy to avoid breaking. And Jesus shows how much the, the young man really did covet that which was not his own. Jesus said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And the young man, we read the text, and he could not do it. He went away sad, because it says, for he was one who owned much property. He could not imagine losing what he owned. He intensely desired that which really did not belong to him, because his possessions belonged to God, just as ours do. And he would have done well to acknowledge that. Coveting was a blind spot for the rich, young ruler, and it's very often a blind spot for us. So we've looked at the unique seriousness of coveting. What about diagnosing it, diagnosing coveting? MRI, imaging, it's incredible technology. It allows the doctor to see exactly what's going on within, that they slide you into that tube and your insides are laid bare, at least on the screen that the technician is looking at. The Ten Commandments work on us is like undergoing a spiritual MRI. If we allow the Holy Spirit to search us through the Ten Commandments, then he will very often show us what we did not even know was there. What then can help us to diagnose covetousness? Well, the first symptom of a covetous heart is this. You hurt others for your own gain. You hurt others for your own gain. And I don't necessarily mean physical harm, though that does occur. A teenager is murdered by another teen because of his Jordans he's got on his feet. That happens. Violent crime is often rooted in coveting. 
But think about the ways that you might be hurting others in order to secure what you think will make you happy. And manifest in this do-whatever-it-takes-to-get-ahead mindset. And many people walk around with this attitude. It comes across in the look that you give and the, and the snide remarks that you might make and the snickers under your breath and the subtle tearing down of others behind your back. If you work with them and you want their position, coveting may manifest in the way that you downplay or downright sabotage their efforts to your boss. You can hurt others for your own gain when it comes to desiring certain status or prestige for yourself and being willing to run over others to get it. Sometimes people work financial schemes where they come out financially above others who did not choose to cut corners. Coveting. Another sign of a covetous heart is you are preoccupied with accumulating more and more. You're preoccupied with accumulating more and more. This might be a preoccupation with gathering more stuff. Most of us, probably all of us, have more stuff than we need and we still accumulate more. When this gets noticeably out of control, we have a term for it. We call it hoarding. It is coveting when you are preoccupied with acquiring more money or even with gaining more popularity in the eyes of your peers. It's not a sin to desire to have more money in the bank or to desire to have what you need to live comfortably. But it is a sin to be preoccupied with stuff and money, to obsess over it. As Americans, we are especially prone to fall into this. America has essentially perfected the middle class. Before the 20th century, most of the world throughout history was divided into two categories, the haves and the have-nots. And the poor were always the vast majority. Some of this began to change with the Industrial Revolution in Europe. Economic growth that the Industrial Revolution uh, contributed to gave the person not born into wealth the ability to start to do better than his forefathers. And then we have this democratic republic that was established by the founders of America that served to level social classes like never before. The French historian Alexander de Tocqueville he came to America in 1831. In his classic work, Democracy in America, which was based on his observations as a foreigner here, he wrote, the whole country seems to have melded into one middle class. After World War II, the American economy exploded. The average American suddenly had access to stuff and money that was only obtainable by the wealthy and aristocratic in the past. And because we're born into such conditions, we take it for granted. Instead of enjoying the blessings, and they are blessings, of this unprecedented wealth, that is, think about it, access to vehicle ownership, access to house ownership, access to property ownership, recreation, vacations, money in the bank, houses and storehouses full of material possessions, instead of enjoying these blessings, we still have to want more. Like Rockefeller, just a little bit more. And when our stuff or bank accounts are threatened, what do we do? We panic. And all the while, with more stuff comes the anxiety of protecting that stuff. As one preacher said, often the sin is not the purchase of the stuff, but the time, energy, and effort required to maintain it. A preoccupation with accumulating stuff is a symptom of a covetous heart. 
Another symptom is related to what I just mentioned, and that is an unwillingness to give up what you possess. An unwillingness to give up what you possess. Now, we're each called to work hard. We are wise if we save what we earn. We have a responsibility to steward our assets. But what are we doing with the blessings of prosperity? We've all been blessed. Make, make no mistake. What are we doing with those blessings? Because with great blessing comes great responsibility. God did not bless this nation with material prosperity so we could spend it on ourselves. Now, I understand that if those outside of the church are self-centered and self-absorbed, their possessions are basically all they have to live for. So by all means, hoard them. There you go. But we in the church, we have no excuse. We, we sing about the riches that await us, these incomparable riches in the next life. Yet, when it comes to releasing some of those temporary riches, we hesitate. Thankfully, Christians in the U.S. have given more to the worldwide missionary cause than any other nation. We have. However, listen to these sobering statistics from over 20 years ago. This was back in 2001 when I could pull up. Christians' annual income is $12.3 trillion. That's Christians. $12.3 trillion in 2001. $213 billion is given to Christian causes. $11.4 billion is given to foreign missions. To put a finer tip on that, to help with the math here, Christians make up 33% of the world's population, but receive 53% of the world's annual income and spend 98% of it on themselves. Let that sink in. Of those who claim to be Christians, we spend 98% of our income on ourselves. And this is when we already have more than we need. There is an unwillingness to give up what we possess. And this is covetous. Another symptom of a covetous heart is frequent grumbling about your spouse, about your house, about your lack of something, or about your life. Frequent grumbling. And sometimes we make this sound just a little bit nicer when we say, I'm just a glass, half-empty kind of person. Listen to the things that you complain about, even if it's just those things that you complain about in your heart. Are you always wishing that things were not as they are, and looking with envy upon those whose lives you perceive to be more ideal. We're so often absorbed with the next thing. We want the instant gratification that stuff brings. We can order something off the internet and have it here in a day or two. We know it's damaging to our soul, but we still think the next upgrade or the next device or the latest product will give us what we want this time. It didn't last time, but it will this time. And we look with anticipation to the next thing or the next purchase or the next season or the change that we tell ourselves will satisfy our longings. What if instead we learn to find joy at the present moment? But instead, if we're single, we long to be married. If we're married, we long for children. If we have children, we long for grandchildren. If we're working, we long to be retired. If we're doing well financially, we long to be doing better financially. We miss what God is doing in a moment because we dream about what we wish was happening instead of what is happening. 
God has worked in the past and God is going to work in the future. But the only work God is doing that you can experience now is what he is doing now. I've already used the word. It's what produces the coveting within our hearts. It is, of course, discontentment. The reason we covet is because a certain desire leads us to discontentment. When we covet other people's spouses or stuff or positions, we're not loving our neighbors as ourselves. We're simply loving ourselves. When we're not content with what we already possess, we're not loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The reason is because we're saying, Lord, what you have given me is not enough. What you've blessed me with is not sufficient. And I think you see how ingratitude is not loving toward God. After all, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, he knows what you need. He knows when you need it. And part of what it means to trust him is to trust that he has given you what you need to be content in this moment of your life. I once heard a pastor preaching about gratitude, and he touched on this area of discontentment. He said, one way to cultivate gratitude in your own life is to thank God for what he's given to others. Sounds weird, doesn't it? I thought so too, at the time. He then said something that that has stuck with me. He talked about how he and his wife would sometimes drive to nicer areas of the city where they lived and walk around their blocks, walk around their suburbs. And they would see these amazing houses and these immaculately manicured yards, and they would give thanks for how God had blessed those people. And in some way, it brought into perspective how God had also blessed them. And I've tried to practice this over the years. Gratitude for others' stuff doesn't come naturally, but it does help me to be grateful for my own. Gratitude is an antidote for discontentment. Giving thanks helps you and me to be content with what we do have and not crave so deeply what others have. In 1 Timothy 6, 7, and 8, Paul writes these words, we brought nothing into the world, and so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Contentment is just about appreciating what you have. Contentment is about desiring the right things, those things which God has not prohibited. Contentment is about knowing that even if you have absolutely nothing besides the food on your plate and the clothes on your back, you're still satisfied. All that you've accumulated and all that I've accumulated and all that we will accumulate is going to stay right here. On that day of our deaths, everything that we desire that we never received will seem less than pointless. First Timothy 6, 9 continues, but those who wish to get rich fall into a temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. The desire to pursue money, possessions, or position above all else is destructive to yourself and to your relationships. Happiness eludes you in your pursuit. Anxiety ensnares you. And the bitterness over your unfulfilled desires, it will ruin your life. So what about freedom from coveting? How do we get freedom from coveting? If you'll turn with me to the New Testament book of Romans, Romans chapter 7, if you'll flip over there, Romans chapter 7, we'll read a few verses out of Romans 7. 
Paul, the writer of Romans, he's, he's talking about in this chapter the goodness of the law. God spoke the Ten Commandments, and so they must be good. God doesn't give things that aren't good. Paul also speaks about in chapter 7 our, our inability in our own strength to keep the Ten Commandments. Listen to the commandment that he uses in verse 7 as an example in his own life. I'm going to start halfway through verse 7, Romans 7, halfway through verse 7. Paul writes, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. The law brings the knowledge of sin. Paul specifically uses here the Tenth Commandment as an example of this in his own life. It was the commandment that really drove home his sinfulness to him. Now keep in mind, before Paul was a follower of Jesus, he was a Pharisee. This means he was the most law-abiding of the Jewish people. Paul was scrupulous about obeying everything in the law of Moses. Worship God alone, check. No idols, check. Keep the Sabbath, check. No murder, stealing, lying, or adultery, check. Got it. As far as outward appearances go, Paul was a superb observer of the law. He was a model Jew. In his own words, in Philippians 3, 6, he writes, As to the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, talking about himself. He was not even aware of any of the hidden sins of the heart that accompany the commandments. He wasn't aware of the, the lust, the hatred, the dishonesty that lurch in every heart, including his. However, there was a commandment that nailed him. There was a commandment that unfolded the sinfulness of his own heart before the severity of the law's judgment. And it was the tenth. You shall not covet. Not only did Paul realize how covetous his heart really was, the sin within stirred up his covetous tendencies and caused him to even more intensely desire what was forbidden for him to possess. Sin was within. It's within all of us. But it took the Tenth Commandment to make sin alive and real to Paul. Now, a lot of people read this in Romans 7, and they think coveting was the particular sin that Paul struggled with. And I think that's correct, but only partially correct. Coveting was certainly a sin that Paul struggled with. But I believe, like all of us, he also fell short of all of the others as well. It was not as if Paul was saying, I'd be doing great if it wasn't for that pesky tenth commandment. Paul is saying it was the tenth commandment that opened his eyes to his own sin. Not that coveting was his only sin. And this is what is happening here. Coveting is actually the sin. Coveting is the sin that has the potential to open our eyes to every other sin. Remember, every other commandment deals first and foremost with external behavior, but coveting alone deals with the internal reality. It seems like such a mundane command about other people's stuff and other people's donkeys and servants. We don't even have servants. But in actuality, the Tenth Commandment is the gateway into the other commandments. To Paul, coveting was the sin of sins because it was the sin that gave birth to every other sin. Whenever something is forbidden, what happens? It immediately becomes desirable. 
This is why we want what we cannot have. The sin nature within each of us is stirred up by the word no. And so we stomp our foot and we say, yes, I'll have it. I don't care what it costs. As one commentator put it, that which a man must not have becomes the very thing that above all else he desires to have. Or as Paul wrote in Romans 7, we just read it, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. If we go back to Genesis 3, for sin is always traced back to Genesis 3, we find a reason that Eve desired the fruit was because God said she could not have it. It wasn't the only reason, but it was one of the reasons. You can't have it. And the devil knew that he only had to appeal to that forbidden thing to arouse Eve's desire. And think about it. This was before sin entered into the world. Eve didn't have a sin nature at that point. Of course, the temptation was there. But even without the sin nature within Eve, a nature we all possess, Eve's desire for that one thing God had forbidden drove her to disobey God. Coveting in us is so strong precisely because we don't like being told no. What we had never desired before all of a sudden becomes appealing because we're told we can't have it. The power of coveting over us is strong and it's ancient. What then is the answer? How can we combat a sin that is so strong and pervasive? The sin that effectively opens the door for all the others. Well, the 10th commandment shows you definitively, if you still have any doubt, that you cannot love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you cannot love your neighbor as yourself. The problem is discontentment. The problem is we look to everything to make us content except the very source of contentment. When you seek satisfaction and happiness and contentment and anything except in God himself, you will desire that which you have no right to possess. And all the while, God himself the only thing worth ultimately desiring has given you full and free access to him. And we go and we trade in lasting and satisfying pleasure for fleeting and unsatisfying pleasure that we can't even obtain, but we still run after it. God can give you something better than what your heart covets. Everything you set your hopes and dreams upon will let you down in one way or the other. Those people and things and positions that you most covet, if you ever lay hold of them, they will disappoint you. They will fail you. Obtaining them will only prove that coveting is idolatry. You make an idol out of everything you set your heart upon that is not God. And then when you get what you want, the thing that you made into a God is as disappointing as you should have realized it would be. There is a man named Asaph. You can turn here. Psalm 73. Psalm 73. A man named Asaph, he wrote this psalm. We don't know much about him. We do know that he wrote Psalm 73. He was a godly man. He was a man who knew God and a man who loved God. A man who knew God is good to his people, which he says in verse 1 of Psalm 73. He writes, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But Asaph had a problem. It wasn't a little problem. It was a big problem. He had a covetous heart. And it was manifested in the way that he observed the godless people around him, and he noticed that they did not suffer the consequences of their bad behavior. That bothered him. It even seemed like they were rewarded instead. 
Verse 3, Psalm 73, For I was envious of the arrogant and saw the prosperity of the wicked. And verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, that have increased wealth. On the other hand, when Asaph looked at his own life, he declared in verse 14, I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He coveted the food the wicked ate. He coveted the riches they possessed. He coveted the satisfied lives they seemed to live. And it got so bad that in verse 13, he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. It's in vain. What did Asaph need? Well, he needed to see things from God's perspective. And that's the cure for coveting. We read in verses 17 through 19, Psalm 73. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. Asaph needed perspective. Asaph had to take the focus off of himself and gaze upon the Lord. How do you gaze upon the Lord? You do it through his word. God reveals himself in his word. You gaze upon God when you pray, when you worship. Whatever you need to do to take the focus off yourself and off your surroundings and off your discontentment and put your focus on God. Gaze upon him. Come into his sanctuary. If we could only see how everything we covet would disappoint us if we had it. If we can only see how everyone we covet will end up in the same place as we will before the Lord to give an account. Here's Asaph's declaration in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, Lord, I desire nothing on earth. There's the antidote for coveting right there. It's realizing over and over, as often as you need to be reminded, that nothing and no one on earth compares to loving God and being loved by Him. Nothing. Nothing will satisfy you but God. Nothing will bring you contentment except God. Gaze upon Him. If you desire God alone, if you covet His presence above all else, every earthly desire is going to grow dim. And only when the Lord alone is your greatest desire will you even appreciate lesser desires when they are fulfilled. You can't even appreciate them if you're missing the Lord. Only when God alone is your greatest desire will you understand how many things and people that you covet are destined to perish. Naked, you will return. Naked, I will return. Only God remains. Only God and what he chooses to give you. Jesus Christ had desires. He desired food when he was hungry. He desired rest when he was tired. He desired companionship when he was lonely. But unlike Adam, that first man who sinned by eating the fruit in the garden, the devil could not tempt Jesus to covet bread even after he had not eaten for 40 days. The devil could not tempt Jesus to covet Instant recognition as the Messiah, he could not tempt him to covet all the kingdoms of the world and all their riches and their power. Jesus Christ was the only person who could truly say he desired God above all else. He was the only one of whom it could truly be said he did not yearn for that which was not his right to possess. 
Jesus, unlike Asaph, unlike the psalmist, unlike you and me, could truly declare, Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Because Jesus Christ loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, he could demonstrate ultimate love for his neighbor by dying for him, by laying down his life. That is for you and for me. Jesus took the judgment that we deserve. He died in our place because each of us desires that which is not our right to possess. And each of us has failed to love God as we should. Jesus died as one who broke all the commandments, as one who opened the door to lawlessness by coveting that which did not belong to him, though he never did that. But he died for it. He paid the price that you owe. He suffered death and experienced hell on your behalf. And then he rose from the dead. And by virtue of his resurrection life, all who place their trust in him are viewed by God as if they live the life that Jesus lived. Jesus died the death that you deserve, and now God sees you if you're a Christian as if you live the life that he lived. That is, God sees you as perfected. God sees you if you're a Christian as if you truly declared beside you, God, I desire nothing on earth. And through the Holy Spirit who lives within you, if you are a Christian, you are being made more and more like Jesus every day. You stand before God completely forgiven and free. And the Lord is teaching you to walk as one completely forgiven and free from the entanglements of sin. Are you responding? Are you living up to who God says you are? You can't do that. By your own efforts. You can't do that in your own strength, but you can do it by faith in the one who died and rose again on your behalf. Where are you unable to say, besides you, Lord, I desire nothing on earth? Where can you not say that in your life? When you think about that, besides you, Lord, I desire nothing on earth, you're like, eh. there is that one thing. There's that other thing. What do you desire on earth that is keeping you from experiencing the fullness of joy and contentment in Christ? May the Lord show you, and may the Lord show me, that we might turn from those things, those people, those positions, whatever it is, may the Lord reveal it, so we might turn from it. We might turn from that thing that is keeping us from satisfaction, and delight in him alone. What is the cure for coveting? Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, Lord, I desire nothing on earth. Let us pray. Father, as we have gone through this last commandment, we realize how convicting it is. And we realize, Lord, how you use it to drive us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever might be in the way in each of our lives that we are coveting, that we are desiring above you, Lord, may you show us, may you give us grace to repent of that, so that, Lord, we might truly find happiness and contentment and satisfaction in you, because it's not found anywhere else. So help us not to deceive ourselves, convince ourselves that it is. Give us perspective, Lord, and we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name.